I'm Jean Todd, and I'm pleased to know that you are listening Beyond the Grid. Hello everyone, Tom Clarkson here, and welcome to your favourite podcast. It's Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35-2 wireless headphones. My guest this week is one of motorsport's high achievers. In a career spanning 50 years, he's won pretty much everything, from rallying to the Paris-Dakar to Le Mans and the Formula One World Championship. And as if that wasn't enough, he's currently in his third term as president of the FIA and in the throes of working on F1's 2021 rules, among other things. I'm talking, of course, about Jean Todd. To F1 fans, Jean is most famous for leading Ferrari to multiple F1 world titles in the 2000s. And as mighty as that domination was, and don't forget that Schumacher's driver's title in 2000 was Ferrari's first since 1979, you need to remember that Todd's achievements extend far beyond Maranello. He was a successful rally co-driver before taking the reins at Peugeot Sport and dominating all forms of rallying and the World Sports Car Championship. Jean is an intense character. He's a self-confessed workaholic who doesn't take holidays and only looks forward. So it was interesting and surprising to sit down with him for an hour at Silverstone recently with cars buzzing in the background and to ask him to reflect. After all, this is a man who rarely has an hour to spare. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jean, welcome to Be On The Grid. It's fantastic to have you on the show. I'd like to start by taking you back to 1993. You've just started at Ferrari. What state was the team in when you arrived? We are talking about the 1st of July, 1993. Mm, I mean, it was not the easiest uh, situation, but I was... uh, I was prepared to that because uh, before accepting the challenge, of course, uh, I was uh, informed uh, how things uh, were, uh, what was the level of the of the challenge, and I remember Alain Prost uh, telling me, "You will not be able to resist more than uh, one and a half year." Two years, and uh, it's, um, I mean, uh, knowing that the challenge uh, well, was going to be tough, but um, maybe it gave me extra motivation to, to face it. And um, when I arrived, then, uh, you know, first I, I tried to make myself my own opinion, to analyze the situation, and, uh, you know, like... Uh, if you are a doctor, you see a patient and you try to then define the right uh, prescriptions. Okay. Why did you accept the job? If we just go back a little bit, you'd had lots of success with Peugeot. You just finished one, two, three at Le Mans. Why did you need Ferrari? Because, you know, first... Um, When I was at Peugeot, incidentally, I thought I would uh, end up my professional career at Peugeot. But um, I will take the example of uh, climbing the mountain. So I started as a rally co-driver, then went uh, to run a, a rally team, which was very successful. Then we went to cross country, which were very successful. Then sports car, which were very successful. And then I thought, okay... Uh, I did my time with uh, motor racing. I want to do something else uh, in the group. And um, it did not happen like that because, uh, I mean, the top management at the time saw that uh, I was uh, important uh, to run the motorsport uh, activities. And um, that was it. And uh, that was not my my way of seeing the things. Had Peugeot entered Formula One with its own team, would you have stayed? So, I mean, it was part of the agreement I had with uh, Peugeot. First, I thought it would have been a good move for Peugeot to go to Formula One 
But uh, nevertheless, my decision was to do something else. And uh, maybe it's a paradox because I went to Ferrari to run Formula One, but simply because Ferrari was special to me. You know, Ferrari, the kind of uh, icon of uh, GT car, icon of uh, motor racing. And um, I was never expecting to get uh, this challenge offered to me. And uh, that's why I loved it. And um, I thought that, um, I mean, bringing Ferrari at the highest level of success in Formula One will be a special achievement. Nothing compared by competing with a company like Peugeot in Formula One. How intimidating was it when you first turned up in Maranello? Could you speak Italian at the time? No, in fact, I mean, my first... Uh, I, I must say all my discussion with, at the time with Luca di Montezemolo did not happen at uh, Ferrari headquarters because people would have uh, recognized us and uh, we wanted to keep it uh, secret. But um, my, in fact, my first official contact uh, with uh, Ferrari on the 1st of July was uh, going to a Grand Prix, which was incidentally the French Grand Prix in Manicourt. So I first attended the Grand Prix as team principal. And then on a Monday after the Grand Prix, I arrived uh, in Maranello where I discovered my office. Oh, how amazing. Well, let's talk drivers. You had a Lacey and Berger at the time. Was it clear to you that you needed a change on that front? No, I, you know, I go back to what I was mentioning earlier. I wanted to to analyze the situation, to understand the situation. And at the time, uh, uh, you know, it was uh, not uh, a kind of uh, unified analyze of the situation. Chassis people were saying that uh, it was the engine which was not working. Engine was saying that it was the chassis. Then everybody was saying, but we don't have the proper drivers. So it was just, honestly, it was a mess. And uh, so... I considered at the time that if we had a driver who would not be able to be discussed. And in fact, uh, at the time, the driver who was in this situation was uh, Ayrton Senna. Unfortunately, Ayrton Senna in '94 uh, uh, decided to go to William because we could not offer him a drive in '94. And um, he had this tragic accident in, uh, in Imola. And uh, that was uh, when uh, Michael started, I mean, to, to emerge. Uh, and uh, he became uh, world champion in 94. Then uh, we discussed uh, with him uh, in 95. And uh, in uh, August, uh, end of July, uh, uh, early August uh, 95, he, he signed uh, for Ferrari in 96. So this parameter of having one driver which could not be discussed was achieved. So that was the first thing to do, is to take the driver out of the questioning and then from that you could then work on the technical side. Was that your thinking? I mean, no, that way, you know, we, were, we needed to rebuild everything. Uh, but uh, clearly the parameter of driver had uh, to be addressed. And by taking Michael, it was addressed. But still, we had to uh, rebuild uh, the chassis department. We had to um, to create the proper facilities. At the time, the chassis department was uh, in UK, you know, which for me was uh, uh, something which was not... Uh, had all what was needed. We needed to have everybody under the same roof. And if you remember, at the time, Ferrari was the only team producing chassis and engine. So I wanted everybody under the same the same roof. And clearly, we needed also to work to have a proper engine. 
What did John Barnard say to you when you said Guildford in the UK is not working? Did you invite him to Maranello or was it clear that you needed someone? Oh, yes, of course. You know, we had, uh, we had good discussions, you know, we had uh, good discussion, but for him it was uh, out of, uh, of sorts uh, to come and, uh, and spend uh, his life uh, in Maranello. We, but, uh, I mean, it was something uh, which was not new because, um, I mean, he had... Uh, Contact and he collaborated with Ferrari for many years uh, before he left and he came back. And um, I think he, he understood, maybe he was not happy about the decision, but he understood the, dis- the decision. But anyway, um, it was a decision which could not be changed. So was... Michael's Michael Schumacher's impact on the team immediate. I mean, you know, discipline because we knew that uh, he was a great driver, very efficient, very organized, very pragmatic, and uh, we knew that uh, he will not tolerate uh, being in a team with amateurs. So we had immediately to demonstrate that. Uh, Ferrari was a very professional and organized and structured team. Was there one thing that stood out about him? I mean, yes, brilliant driver, but outside of the car. Why was he the answer outside of the car? Because uh, simply, you know, Michael was always very curious, very available to participate to the development uh, of the team, very, very engaged and uh, he, he was the first interested. He came to Ferrari because he wanted to be world champion with Ferrari. So he had to, to give a very strong contribution. But uh, I mean, uh, quickly, uh, he, he understood that we were, we were on, the, on the right track. Was it a difficult sell to him? I mean, you couldn't guarantee that he was going to win a world championship in year one, could you? What was the plan when he arrived? Did you have a three-year plan, a five-year plan? No, I mean, we... I mean, he, he arrived in uh, in 96. Honestly, I don't remember. Uh, but I think it was a three-year contract. And uh, he knew that uh, we were in a kind of uh, rebuilding uh, phase of the team. He knew that. Uh, he knew uh, I had contact... Uh, with some of the people he knew well. And I mean, I had a contact uh, with uh, Rose Brown and with uh, Rory Byrne. Incidentally, they did not know individually that uh, I had a contact with uh, one of them. And I remember when, uh, after I signed uh, Ross and Rory, I suggested that uh, they should be aware of it. And uh, I uh, invited to go for a drink and to celebrate that they will be coming together to work at Ferrari. But they did not know at all that they were going to work together. How amazing. Um, How much more difficult is it to hire people for Ferrari? Because it's in England, it's... No, it's it's, in Italy. It's in Italy. (laughs) I'll get my geography sorted out. Um, is it much harder to lure people because it's such an Anglo-centric sport, isn't it? Yes, you know, and, and you know, at the time, I must say, people were always scared to come to Italy because, I mean, uh, family issues, and uh, they saw that it was going to be a very political team, very difficult to to adapt uh, themselves uh, in Italy. So they were not all. Uh, I mean, uh, keen to take uh, the challenge. But, uh, I mean, uh, that was uh, part of uh, the thing I had to convince them. You mentioned the word politics. How political was Ferrari back then? Honestly, I mean, I never suffered really about uh, politics at Ferrari. You know, it was... uh, Clearly, uh, a team with a lot uh, of uh, attention around because, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, 
Ferrari being a, a kind of a legendary organization, I mean, it's right to say that it's a big attention from the outside. So, and big attention and big expectation. And um, that's part of the game. So it's never something which uh, really uh, worried me. Was Peugeot quite a good school for you pri prior to going to Ferrari? In a way, are they quite similar beasts, Peugeot and Ferrari, the sporting side? I would say all my career has been a good school. You know, uh, first I went to university, which was a kind of uh, the appetizer. Then I was a rally co driver, where I did uh, rallies with a lot of drivers, with a lot of teams. And uh, my role was uh, above being only a co driver. I remember being also appointed as the, the representative of the drivers in the FIA. That was the first contact with me and FIA. So, long time ago, we are talking about uh, 40 years ago, about. And, um, and it did prepare me to my next uh, stage, which was to become a, a team director of a, of a rally team. So, as I was mentioning earlier, climbing the mountain was uh, for me a kind of learning process. But you know, I still learn every day today, you know, which is uh, probably why I still have passion because I'm still curious of making things better in a different uh, surrounding, different challenges. So on that, it's something I always enjoyed a lot. But did you feel the pressure of representing a nation, representing Italy? Did you personally feel that pressure? Not really, but probably at, on this specific point, it was an advantage being a foreigner because I was only focused of achieving what we needed to achieve for the final result. But unfortunately, it took a lot of time, you know, and... Uh, I remember a couple of days ago, I was in London to see the premiere of this movie, Heroes. And I mean, you see how in 97, uh, in the last 10 minutes, uh, Michael lose a driver title. 98, last race, 99. Last race, this time with Eddie Irvine. And fortunately, we got the Manufacturers' Championship until it changed in 2000, but 2000 was not obvious. You know, I mean, at the beginning of the season, we were not favorite, and finally things moved, but we put so much effort for that. How frustrating were those years you've just described? 97, 98, 99. Did you ever stop believing but you know it started before because uh, I joined Ferrari as we mentioned earlier the 1st of July 93 so 94 with uh, Gerhard Berger we won a Grand Prix I think it was the German Grand Prix 95 with Jean Lizzy we won one Grand Prix which was in Canada 96 Michael joined we won three Grand Prix and the expectation was immediate at this time. So we had to, to pass 96, to pass 97, 98, 99, until we could, uh, we could achieve something. So it was amazing uh, pressure. And I must say here we created a very strong solidarity, you know, all together to resist together. And uh, probably that created a unique links which are still existing now. Was it difficult to keep the motivation of the team up when you were going through those difficult times? You know, motivation was always there. Motivation was uh, always there. And um, I must say, uh, and I had always been there even once we had success. So we were we were determined, you know, like a, like a war machine. Uh, ambitious and, uh, and determined to achieve the results and to keep the results. Now, look, you mentioned Hareth 97. Such a huge moment 
in that season, but it's also one of the sort of most memorable moments in modern Formula One history, that collision between Michael and Jacques Villeneuve. How surprised were you that Michael did that? That he turned in on Jacques? I mean, honestly, not surprised. You know, it's part of the history of motorsport. You have a lot of other examples, you know, which have been much worse than uh, with Michael and Villeneuve. I mean, if you remember, Prost and Senna, two years in a row, you know. So, I mean, that's uh, that part of the controversy in motorsport, in Formula One. And so, it's, I, I don't think it's, it's always good, but um, it's part of the story and uh, we still see these kind of things. Did you ever try and sit down with Michael and understand why he did that? Maybe it was a protection. He wanted to protect his position. He did not protect it well, because if he would have protected it well, it would have worked, it did not work. So, you know, he was heavily punished. The team was punished. And, uh, but uh, as I said, talking about that, uh, 22 years uh, after, it has uh, created some uh, unique uh, links with us because we, we kept together. No, nobody escaped. You know, was it just he just had this incredible desire to win that he would do anything? Is that how you explain it in your mind? But you know, anything you know, again, you you must accept the pressure. You must uh, accept the the challenges a driver are facing to get their result. You know, to to get what they are dreaming of. So, sometimes, the way to achieve, to achieve it is not rational. But you don't, you don't realize in the heat of the moment. So you do things that if you think carefully, you will not do. Jean, what was it like being Michael Schumacher when he was racing for Ferrari? Can you just give us a glimpse into what it was like being him when he was racing for you in terms of the pressure he was under, the adulation he went through? Was it difficult to keep his feet on the ground? No, Michael, you know, Michael has always been with his feet on the ground, which probably helped him to be so successful over the years, because Michael always was full of doubt about his capacity of winning with a Formula One car. He doubted himself. He did. He did. Every year before the start of the season, he was asking me to have a private session in Fiorano to make sure that he was still a good driver. Every season. That's amazing. Every year. But I suppose, what, and he kept improving and learning because of that doubt, I suppose. You know, I think it, uh, he had always been anxious and it's something we have been sharing. Anxious not to be good enough. And uh, that's what made him so good because he, he was able to, to put himself into question. So can you just shed some light now on Suzuka 2000? After the disappointment of 97, 98, 99, you guys finally get the job done. Tremendous race, that one as well, wasn't it? As it just taken in isolation. But just was it relief? Was it joy? No, that was relief. And was that the overriding you know, remember, emotion? Well, when uh, I took uh, Michael uh, to the podium, I mean, going up, climbing the the metallic stairs to go to the podium, I told him, Michael, uh, our life, professional life, will never be the same because we we achieved what we wanted to achieve. And 
clearly that was uh, something very, very special for, for everybody because it was, I mean, also a reward of so much pain, so much effort, so much uh, difficult times. And uh, that, uh, that was uh, finally getting the fruit of it. And then, of course, once you start winning, <laughs> you don't stop. What was it like to ride that crest of a wave when you guys were just dominating Formula One? I mean, you know, we first, we, it's never something we completely realized. And we were so focused. You know, we were so focused uh, to the success that uh, we were concentrating on each single detail as if we would never have won a, a Grand Prix. So, I mean, it was uh, really a full focus to make things to make things well. And so when you were winning the title, what was it, Magnico, I think, in 2004? Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> that, that was bonkers. It was so early. That you didn't was... even let yourself relax after that. No, and and then we won the manufacturer championship a couple of races after in uh, in Budapest, and I remember uh, being uh, on the grid in uh, in Monza, and I was anxious like hell about the outcome of the result. And then I speak to myself, and I said, "But you are already world champion, so what do you care about?" But you know, it was as I was mentioning, it was in our gene, just being competitive. And, uh, and not realizing what we had achieved before. So when you look back at your time at Ferrari, what makes you proudest? To have resisted. Really, Last, lasted more than a year and a half or what Alain you know, to have, uh, I, I, Going back to what uh, Alain told me, you cannot resist two, two years. And finally, I decided to leave. First, I wanted to leave uh, in uh, 2004. And uh, I had a long discussion with uh, Luca Di Montezemolo, who was the chairman, and uh, he did not let me go. And he proposed me to become the CEO of the company, which was difficult for me to refuse. Can I just ask, why did you want to leave? Because I thought uh, I did my time. I, I did what I was committed to do as the boss of the team, and uh, that I was uh, ready for a new chapter. And... Uh, in fact, uh, he offered me something I was not expecting. Again, being the CEO of uh, Ferrari, and I mean, everybody wanted me to stay. So I was not brave enough to decide to leave until I did it in, uh, in fact, 2008. Uh, I left my position and uh, I remained uh, one year as a kind of consultant, I mean, to prepare. Um, <laughs> The, the next steps, and uh, and I left in uh, April '09. Ten years now. How different was the job when you were CEO of Ferrari compared to just the Scuderia? Mm, I mean, uh, I mean, of course, you know, I had a overall view on uh, the leadership of the whole company, but of course, I was still always very focused on what was happening on the sporting side. Uh, I appointed Stefano Dominicali to to take uh, the position of uh, team principal, but I was still uh, monitoring on daily basis uh, the racing division. And uh, of course, uh, uh, I I was in charge of the production side, of the GT, GT side, but it's uh, not something which was completely new for me because I was in the board of Ferrari since uh, already... Uh, a few years, so I mean, I was always very interested about uh, the development of the whole uh, organization. So for me, it was not kind of real different life for me. And your skills as a manager, a lot of people I talk to about you would walk over hot coals for you. Why do you think that is? Why, why you seem to have this connection with the people that work for you? No, I must say that is, uh, I mean, that, uh, I mean, sometimes very emotional for me because, uh, you know, I, I, I left, uh, I left uh, Peugeot in uh, 93, I mean, 30th of June, 30th of June, 
And uh, so it's now uh, 26 years. And still I see people and they remind me the the time we have been spending together and the same with the people at Ferrari. I mean, simply, I think because we have been, we have been uh, sharing amazing time and uh, probably, I mean, I always try to give a lot of myself to the team, to the people that they gave a, a lot uh, in return uh, to me and they, it created a, a, a good combination. So probably, I mean, this combination, uh, I mean, will will remain or has remained. You mentioned again your, your time with Peugeot. Is rallying your first love? No, you know, I mean, I, on that I must say I'm quite uh, flexible, you know, and uh, each, uh, each chapter of my life, and I'm blessed for that, I've been a loved one. So, you know, I mean, uh, being passionate about uh, about cars is one chapter. Being a rally car driver was another chapter. Peugeot, rally, another one. Cross country, sport car, Ferrari. Now, FIA, United Nations. Uh, again, you know, I feel blessed to be able to have had and still have responsibility in uh, campus activities where I love to think I can make a contribution. Is it true that you used to, I'm not quite sure what the right, right word is here, that you used to borrow your mum and dad's Mini Cooper when you, father, when you were young? Yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> to go rallying. Know, but, uh, I mean, my father, my father was uh, very weak with me. And even if he did not have a lot of means, but he was uh, always uh, willing to to please me. And sometimes I did things uh, I should not have done, but uh, maybe I learned out of that. Were you a good driver? I, Don't be modest. I, I was a, maybe a bit a wild driver, but I was quite quick. But uh, I, I mean, for many years, I was considering that I will uh, be a successful driver until... I I change uh, I change my uh, my target my ambitions and um, that's sometimes you know important choices which um, which give you a different life I don't know how it would have been but uh, I must say the choices I did I'm happy I did them Now you've won in pretty much every motorsport discipline possible the rallying the Paris Dakar Le Mans Formula One how do those compare from your vantage point from my just for you with your dealings with each of those categories how did they compare which was I suppose which was the hardest to win I mean the hardest definitely was Ferrari you know because I was a foreigner I was a foreigner and I was uh, involved in a category in, of motorsport where I had no experience. So, and uh, it was uh, probably the most difficult environment. So that was the, the most difficult challenge, but probably the most rewarding challenge I had to face. And when you were a rally co-driver, I mean, what was it like sitting next to the Guy Frequelens and, and Hanu Mikulas? It must have scary i don't know what's, no, the, right, what's I mean, the right you word? know i mean first i mean uh, first time i really sat next to a professional driver was with nsu uh, that was in 66 50 years ago with gishasai was a professional driver and i must say i had a bigger expectation i thought i would not understand what is happening and i understood you know so i mean it was not a uh, uh, kind of a uh, a scary uh, discovery. And uh, the few times I did not understand what was happening, we were off the road. You know, so uh, for me, I must say it was more spectacular outside than inside of the car. But uh, we had, uh, you know, we had uh, some, have some great uh, memories. And uh, sometimes when I think uh, of those memories, have, uh, I mean, uh, some nostalgia, which is, we, we, 
I mean, which is a good feeling. And what about the Group B rally cars of the, of the mid 80s? I mean, they were complete monsters, weren't they? What are your memories of them? No, they were, but uh, I mean, first, you know, that was a great uh, adventure because, uh, I mean, the decision to go uh, into rallying with Peugeot, with a Group B car, uh, and two face uh, competitors like Audi, like uh, Lancia, was a very difficult decision. And uh, finally, it became a very successful decision because uh, we became the dominator in uh, in rallying until, um, I mean, it was considered to be too dangerous and uh, this category was banned. And uh, we, we moved to cross country, which is another kind of adventure. Is there a great story that one of your cars was stolen yeah. on the Paris-Dakar? You were about to win your fourth consecutive Dakar. No, which we won. We won with the other car. Oh, you won with the other, but, but the we one that was leading. What can you just tell us what happened there? I mean, you know, that's still a, a story, unfortunately, where we don't know who was behind that. But, uh, I mean, arriving, uh, no, it, I was in my room in, in Bamako and uh, the car the, had been uh, serviced uh, part of the night. And uh, every morning, I, I was expecting a phone call uh, to go uh, to, to the start of the of the day, and uh, I got a phone call maybe a bit earlier than usual. Um, and uh, our responsible told me, "Harry's car has disappeared." So, um, what does the boss say to that? I I thought it was a joke until I got a phone call from people asking me money if we wanted to get back the car. So then I took that seriously and uh, went down to the reception and uh, realized that the car did appear. So of course we tried to find the car, but uh, unfortunately we did not find it until uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. The start was about seven o'clock in the morning and uh, when we found uh, the car, I mean, 30 kilometers from the, from the city, uh, Harry uh, took the start last, so he had to overtake about 150 cars, lorries, I know that which was a disaster, and until uh, we, we got uh, told that uh, he was going to dis be disqualified, because he did not start in due time. So we tried to challenge his decision for three or four days until uh, we realized that uh, we lost uh, this uh, challenge. And uh, fortunately, Joa Konkinen won the rally, but it's, uh, I mean, an amazing uh, story. Amazing story, amazing story. With a lot of speculations behind, and as usual, I mean, false speculation, but that, that means a story. Crikey. Can I ask you about the dangers in motorsport? For instance, the Group B rallying and, you know, the cars were so fast and the crowds that you had back then. Did you ever struggle to justify motorsport in your mind with all those dangers and the potential you know, possibility? Motorsport has always been a dangerous sport. Fortunately, over the last decades, we have... Uh, improve a lot uh, safety in motorsport, which still remains uh, dangerous. But clearly, 30, 40 years ago, it was much more dangerous than it is now. And uh, I mean, we I will say we are blessed to be in such a period. Nevertheless, you know, every day, we need to try to make motor racing safer and uh, what I keep saying uh, motor racing is not only a show but but also has to be a laboratory a laboratory to be able to implement some of this safety on normal road cars you know and probably one of the reasons I have such a passion having had so many experiences sometimes very strong sad 
experiences that uh, I want to, to be a contributor to make roads safer now around the world. So in your career, um, now Henri Toivonen, I know he wasn't driving for you, but then the accident that Felipe Massa had, for example, in, in Hungary 2009. I mean, I was, I was the CEO of the Ferrari when it happened. With, with Felipe? Uh, no, no, sorry, in, two, no, in 2009, I, I left Ferrari. I was not anymore at Ferrari. And I remember when it happened, I mean, I was, in fact, I was in our country house with my team preparing my campaign as president of the FIA. And uh, we watched that on TV. And uh, my son was, is a manager of Felipe. So immediately I spoke uh, with him on the phone and I realized how serious it was. And uh, incidentally, next day with Michael, we flew to see him in the hospital in Budapest, but it was a terrible time. How did that affect you in the longer term in terms of what you wanted to then achieve oh, I mean, you in know, your presidency at uh, the FIA? It, as I said, I knew and I know that motorsport is dangerous, so we we need to try to do the utmost to make it uh, safer. But, um, I mean, hurting Felipe, Felipe is like a second son for me. So it was, uh, it was very bad. But uh, fortunately... You know, that's why sometimes, you know, when we speak about, uh, I mean, his failure uh, to become a world champion uh, in uh, 2008, I mean, it's very little uh, compared to how blessed he was to be able to escape from uh, this terrible uh, accident. I mean, I mean, can you imagine getting one chalk absorber from the car in front of you on your in lap without even competing for a lap time, which is something, I mean, amazing. You know, you have thought so that's why sometimes in your life you have uh, things which are completely unexpected. You are talking about the car, which was uh, stolen, which was not a physical thing, but it's something absolutely uh, unique. Uh, having such uh, an accident uh, where fortunately today it's simply a bad memory that, uh, I mean, that's uh, interesting experiences. While we're talking about drivers, um, I think your office has got pictures of Jim Clark on the wall. And then, and, and um, Jack Brabham as well, am I right? No, only Jim Clark. No, but only I mean, Jim Clark. Yeah, okay. I tell you, but you know, it's what I was telling you, because that's, uh, each part of my life is a chapter. And the Jim Clark photo is a chapter of my passion for motorsport. So, and for me, he was a kind of my, my model in motorsport. When we are talking about a driver, uh, for which, uh, I mean, I had a, a special respect consideration with Jim Clark. What was it about Jim Clark? Simply, you know, I mean, every, everything, but he was successful, uh, he seemed to be a very nice uh, person. I love the color of his helmet. You know, so it's, it's a lot of things sometimes you cannot explain. But he was, uh, and he's still special for me. It makes me ask, where did your passion for motorsport come from? Because Jimmy would have been killed when you were in your early 20s. Mm -hmm. What was your first exposure to motorsport? What made you go and borrow your dad's Mini Cooper? Where did that come I from? I mean, uh, honestly, it's... Uh, Nat natural, uh, it was probably my gene, uh, nothing to do with uh, my family. I mean, my father was a doctor, he had no interest for the cars. Uh, and uh, I started to, to dream in front of, uh, of beautiful cars and in front of racing. And I still dream. Did you ever think of pursuing medicine as a career? That's what my father was hoping. But uh, myself never. I mean, I I thought my father, I mean, was working so hard. I was not prepared to do what he did. He you was work, much braver than me. You work, you work incredibly long hours. But while we're talking about brain power, um, I, I've been told that you've got an exceptional mathematical brain. 
Is that true? Mm, I mean, I have I, 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 some, some facilities for counting. That's true. Well, see, now, Jean, I've got... Excuse the noise. If I was to put seven numbers in front of you, how quickly would you be able to tell me what they add up to, do you think? I don't know. I don't, you know <laughs> Can I, we try? I, this I, is an experiment. A long time I did not do that. Can we try? Okay, let's try. Okay, look, here's seven numbers. I'm just putting them down in front of you now. Total? So... 16, 18. That's incredible. That is incredible. <laughs> so, folks at home, I've just put, as I say, seven numbers, uh, 1,023 plus 456, etc. And you're absolutely right with that. So, if I was to say to you, John, do you know um, to how many decimal places can you remember the value of pi? Can what? You know pi, the, the fixed number you use for working out the circumference ah, of yeah, the yeah. circle? Do you know no, how many decimal? Because no. a lot of people will say, oh, it's 3.14. But a, some people can go 3.14 and list a whole load of numbers. Can you? No, you can that's, that's a great party trick. Sean, it's a great party trick. Um, uh, how useful too, I suppose, on the pit wall. But Sean, you say your, your career is, is one of different stages. We must talk to you about the FIA now. Um, I thought you wanted to play backgammon with me. No, no, I'm intimidated at playing any game. I love that. <laughs> Is backgammon something you, yeah, you play a lot? I mean, unfortunately, no, I would love to play more, but unfortunately I don't have time. How different is your role as president of the FIA to everything you've done before? I mean, clearly it's a different role. Uh, I would say uh, sometimes you wonder why you do something. So when I was uh, running teams, I could say I do that because I want to win and I want to be well paid. And uh, being president of the FIA, it's very difficult to assess the result of what you do and you do that as a volunteer. So probably it's answer to some of your questions. And I go back to, um, I mean, probably, you know, you arrive in a different chapter of your life and uh, you think you have been so blessed uh, to enjoy some success uh, in a world uh, which was always a fascination for you, which still is. You approach it differently and you want to give something back. So I really feel I'm now in this uh, part of my life where uh, I want uh, to use the credit I've been able uh, to obtain over the over the decade and to give it back to the sport, uh, to make roads safer around the world, to I mean to be able to create more awareness about this uh, terrible uh, pandemic. So um, I'm really attracted by all those challenges and um, being president of the FIA, being the UN Secretary General Special Envoy for Road Safety, give me the platform to do it. You're midway through your final term, so there's still more to do. But what achievements are you most proud of? I mean, I would, you know, I would not use the, the word uh, proud of. Because I think in the life, you know, you shouldn't be proud of anything. Uh, but uh, uh, probably uh, have different interests now in my life. Uh, as I was saying earlier, I feel uh, so blessed compared to so many other people, you know. And uh, I think uh, you must try to give the hand to people who don't have those facilities, or sometimes who are ill, or sometimes who are living in, a, in poverty. When I think about those 70 million of refugees around the world and all that, you, you, I mean, you want to do something. You want to do something because uh, you feel it's uh, unfair to have uh, those people in those uh, tragic situations. And again, we are so blessed to be living in a little controversies uh, but uh, 
that's a different part of the life. Do you think with all your experience and I suppose with age as well, you've developed a sense of perspective that helps you in your role as president? I mean, definitely all what I've, I've learned uh, is helping me to do things, to do different things, to achieve different things, to have different uh, interests, you know. And uh, I mean, uh, I'll, I've learned a lot of things where uh, I can be I can be now a contributor. And uh, that are my new challenges. You know, I faced a challenge as a co-driver, as a team director, as a CEO, and uh, now I have different challenges. You know, I founded with a group of friends a medical institute, which is Brian and Spinal Core Institute, where we have 700 people uh, working on research for brain and spinal cord. Uh, we are now number two in the world, starting that uh, less than 10 years ago. Um, we were talking about uh, other responsibility, have some other interest. So, in a way, I'm blessed at my age to be able to have the passion, to have the, the health, and I must enjoy as long as it will last me. How interesting that medicine did come and get you eventually. Mm, that is true. That is true. You know, sometimes, I mean, you... You can think uh, of your roots, but uh, I must say my life uh, has required very often the support of uh, medicine and doctors. You know, so I mean, uh, I spent my childhood next to my father, was a doctor, and my professional career have been very often also along with doctors to face emergency cases. Now you say you develop, you're developing these other interests, but looking from the outside in, you seem to always work. Are you a workaholic? Work alcoholic? Workaholic. Workaholic. Do you just um, work the whole time? I mean, you know, in how I do you mean, have time? Strand, I, I tell you, by nature, I'm lazy, but I'm committed. You know, if I commit to do something, I will do it. And I'm very committed. It goes above my laziness. But, um, I mean, if I had no commitment, I'm sure I will be able to do very little. So let's keep that for the next chapter. Keep that. Well, another chapter I did just want to quickly ask you about was um, from a Formula One perspective. I think one of your legacies is you've developed this much closer partnership with Formula One, um, and you're now working with Ross, Ross Braun, of course, who you, was one of your architects of the success of Ferrari. How different is the relationship with Ross now compared to when you were batting for the same side? So, I mean, you know, first, first of all, I mean, I had great relationship with Bernie. You know, and I'm, you, you must always have good memory. If I went into Formula One because it was supported by Bernie at the beginning, I remember Bernie was the one to give my name to uh, Montezemolo and to the Agnelli family by saying, this guy you should consider. Uh, and when I was exercising my responsibilities at Ferrari, I was very close to Bernie. When I became president of the FIA, of course, it changed his habits. And uh, we had uh, sometimes some, uh, some tension, some disagreement, but we are still friends, you know. So, uh, and uh, of course, then when uh, Chase arrived with his uh, new team, it was a learning process and it went very well. And as you say, I, I knew, of course, very well uh, Ross, who over the years became a friend. And uh, it's a facilitator uh, on daily basis, uh, saying that uh, due to, I mean, the way our structure, our organization is working, I do deal 
much more on daily basis uh, with chess and then my people are dealing with uh, uh, Ross or with uh, Sean uh, Bratches but I will say uh, things go in a very smooth way because uh, very often I mean we have uh, the same views if we don't have the same views we do agree of what should be the best uh, for for Formula One so that makes a uh, working relationship very pleasant you know and very constructive you mentioned bernie how much of a supporter of ferrari was bernie when he was in charge no i mean uh, when the, you know once uh, once i was in charge he was never a support you know it's uh, he, he was doing his job i was doing my job and uh, we were working closely together but uh, Fortunately, I never had to ask him anything. Did you ever play backgammon with him? Yeah, but I, I must say, he still needs to learn a lot. <laughs> and Joe, with, with a look to 2021, um, how sure are you that Formula One, the FIA and the teams will get it right with the, with the regulations? I mean, we, everybody will put uh, its utmost you know, to, to achieve what we want uh, to achieve. But I'm confident. You know, it's a very complex uh, situation, very complex because it's not easy. But uh, I'm uh, confident that, uh, I mean, over the next uh, three months, we will be able uh, to optimize uh, in order to have a great future for Formula One. And if there's one thing you would like those regulations to achieve... What is it? Is it closer racing? Is it? No, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, of course, you would have uh, races more unpredictable, you know, and uh, more, uh, more, more fight for the for the win, you know. But it's unfortunately, it's in the essence of motor racing, of Formula One, even on the sport. You know, you can see, I mean, in a lot of categories of sport, for years, you have the same people who are on top of it. So, uh, clearly, closer competition, closer racing and good racing. Do you think it's bad for any sport when one person dominates? I mean, you've been there with Ferrari. But other sports... You know, when you are in this uh, privileged position, you enjoy it. Uh, Do you think Formula One suffers as a whole when you were dominating with Ferrari? I mean, people complain, but you know, that's uh, that's human nature. People will always complain. You know, so at the end of the day, you must try to do what you feel is good for the sport, uh, knowing that people will complain. But at least you must be convinced that you make the right decisions. And uh, and then uh, things will go the way they, they should go. And just one final question on the here and now. Um, the stewards, we're talking of decisions, they've been in the news a bit this year. Um, are we likely to see any change in the stewarding of Formula One? Do you think permanent stewards would be an answer? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Um... You know, what, whatever is decided, you will never make unanimity. So what is very important is to have the most professional people. Uh, I think we are very good stewards. Uh, the driver's contribution is very important. Um, maybe we need to define more what is let them race, you know, because, uh, again... Uh, the let them race is a very difficult interpretation. Uh, we need to address uh, also circuit design, which is a big factor. You know, to, to I mean, uh, to for the drivers to to drive, for the stewards to interpret. So I would say again, that is a complex problem which we need uh, to address, but. Uh, I'm optimistic that uh, we are able to to address it uh, properly. But uh, still, as I said, 
controversy is part of the business, you know. And did it upset you that the stewards in Canada, for example, got a lot of criticism from the outside world? But you know, you take uh, you take in motor racing, so Formula One, but you take in football, you take in what, whatever is a sport, you will always have uh, complaints. You know, that's, uh, that's like the stolen car. You know, that's, uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's part of the history. Okay. Well, Jean, you've got 30 months to go until this final term as president comes to an end. Have you stopped to think about what comes next? You know, I mean, it's... Uh, related to many, many things. First, to health. You don't know. Uh, then, to what will be my passion? What will be my motivation? You know, my, uh, again, we're talking about chapters. Maybe my passion, my motivation is finally to go and use uh, some of the cars uh, uh, in front of which I was dreaming when I was a teenager, uh, which I have in the garage. You know, uh, maybe... Uh, is still doing things uh, for others in in other kind of activities. So, I mean, I will have, uh, I'm sure, a lot of uh, opportunities to to keep me busy if I want to be busy. And uh, at the moment, you know, for me, each day I put the maximum effort in what I've been elected to do or I've been chosen to do. And uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not yet thinking thirty years in front of me. Sorry, thirty months in front of me. But are you, you know, you've been on the rev limiter for what forty years now? You haven't stopped. No, I mean more than that because I, you know, I started my career as a co-driver sixty-six, so fifty-three. You were not born. <laughs> no, I wasn't. But do you envisage a time where you will actually relax a little and, as you say, maybe take some You know, maybe in my nature it's difficult to relax. So again, Mm. you know, I I don't know. Time will tell. And and something is sure, which is decided, uh, I will uh, will publish a book. But uh, not, uh, you know, a book with a lot of photos, a kind of artistic book, uh, and it will take me some time to do that. I can't wait to read it. But what about your legacy then? When people in years to come reflect on you and your impact on the, the world of motorsport, what do you think? But, you know, I, I don't you choose like my legacy. Think? People will decide what is my legacy. And uh, so, I mean, as you said, some people, they, they have amazing memories. Maybe some other people, they don't have so good me- memories. So... I mean, that's a democracy. People who can think what they want. Right. So my final questions to you are this. Who was the best driver rallying Formula One, Le Mans? Best driver you ever worked with? I mean, you know, I hate these questions the best because in 53 years, I've seen a lot of things. But uh, clearly, I mean, the, the driver, which is a closest to my heart is Michael because uh, I mean we we have built so many things together and it has been so difficult to do it and uh, as you know I mean uh, Michael had become uh, a close friend and uh, we know that uh, I mean since now over five years uh, he had been in a difficult uh, situation so of course uh, I mean, he's close to my, closer to my heart uh, than anybody else. Best car? Race, rally, Dakar? No, I mean, best car, probably, you know, it's, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, you know, each period had its best car. I mean, the 205 was amazing. Uh, the 905 was amazing. The Ferrari was amazing. I must say, again, you know, I've I've been part of amazing amazing team with amazing cars, so I would I don't think it would be fair to say only one, but each each chapter there have been some some particular time in in struggling and in success. 
best race or rally? I mean, you know, in, in rallying, in, uh, when I was running Peugeot, maybe that was the Southern uh, Lakes uh, in, uh, is it uh, 84 or 85, the first rally we win. Because I was wondering if one day we will win a rally. And it was the first one, so I said, at least we will win one rally. And that was Southern Lakes. And uh, in Formula One, clearly it's uh, Suzuka 2000. Okay. That was the best success. And in which chapter of your life do you think you've been happiest? I've been? Happiest. I, I've never been happy already. You know, I'm, uh, I'm always anxious. So, I mean, I don't really know what is the happiness or, you know, for a few hours, but uh, I mean, on long term, I don't know what is happiness. And I, I'm the most blessed person, you know, I've very interesting career, fantastic wife, amazing son. So uh, I, uh, good health. But you still question what happiness is? I do. And so when you won all those rallies and races and but you it know, was it only was momentary, the happiness. Exactly. So it's always the next. On to the next. Yeah, you know, always having the tendency to, to look at what could be better. Jean, thank you very much for your time. Welcome. Love the chat. Thank you. So many little gems in that conversation. Jean's description of Michael Schumacher, the man. How he went about hiring Ross Braun and Rory Byrne. The fact that he wanted to leave Ferrari at the end of 2004. The stolen car on the Paris-Dakar rally. And that numbers trick, seriously cool. And it helps explain why Jean always had a stopwatch around his neck on the pit wall. He could crunch numbers as fast as any computer. Thanks, Jean, for your time and for sharing your memories. Well, that's it for this episode, but we'll be back next week with another big name from the world of F1. Until then, why not subscribe to Beyond the Grid if you haven't already? We're on all of your favorite podcast apps, including Apple and Spotify. And thanks for your feedback about last week's episode with Derek Warwick. It was a cracker, wasn't it? Derek's openness left an impression on many of you, including Costas Deviant. What an amazing podcast with Derek, he says. It had everything, fights, dramas, comedy, tragedy... It was like a movie for our ears. Well, it was indeed, wasn't it? And thanks for your feedback, Costas, and please keep it coming because we really love hearing from you, all of you. And remember to use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.